Hey folks, Micah here. We're about to get started, but before we do, I just want to remind you that you can always get show notes for this and every other episode at christiantranshumanistpodcast.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for email updates so we can let you know when new shows are released, when new things happen in the Christian transhumanist community, and most importantly, so that we can connect you with other people just like you, exploring questions just like this. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, I'm Mike Redding, and I'm here with Robert Wright, who's a journalist, scholar, prize-winning author. He's written best-selling books about science, evolutionary psychology, history, religion, and game theory, including The Moral Animal, The Evolution of God, and Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny. Uh, thanks, Bob, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so let's talk. There's there's so much of this that I want to um, unpack and explore. Um, I want to talk about um, your recent article for the New York Times um, about whether evolution can have a purpose. I want to talk about the evolution of God. Um, but let's start with non-zero. Um, I, and I just recently finished this book. I loved it. Um, how would you explain it for someone who's not familiar with game theory? Well, I mean, first I'd say it's a book largely, it's about human history, and it argues that human history has a kind of direction, and that part I think should be fairly uncontroversial. I mean, it's pretty clear that social complexity has grown. I mean, we've gone from hunter-gatherer villages 15,000 years ago to a globalized society, you know, and, and uh, uh, the question is, um, what drives that? And I put the answer in terms of game theory, and, and, and that, that's where the game theory comes in. There's, there's basically two kinds of games in game theory, zero-sum and non-zero-sum. In a zero-sum game, my win is your loss and vice versa. So if you and I are playing tennis, each point is good for one of us and bad for the other by exactly the same amount. But if we're playing doubles and you and I are on the same side of the net, then each point is either good for both of us or bad for both of us. It's win-win and lose-lose. So, so in other words, our fortunes are positively correlated with one another. And whenever your fortunes are positively correlated rather than being inversely correlated, it's a non-zero-sum game. Hmm. Yeah, so, so that's, the, that's the premise of this, is that uh, these non-zero-sum games are the... Um, are the driver of of kind of where we've gone. Yeah, and that through technological evolution, starting back in the Stone Age, technologies have come along and encouraged people to play non-zero-sum games uh, over larger scales, you know, involving more and more people, more and more complex non-zero-sum games. Uh, so, you know, the, the modern global economy is in a way a huge non-zero-sum game. I mean, if you buy a car, you are paying the wages, some little bit of the wages of workers all over the world who made little parts of that car. Mm. And you feel you've come out ahead because you, obviously you paid the money for the car, so you'd rather have the, ca the car than the money you paid. You're happy with the deal. And, and those people, uh, you know, they, they wanted to work and make money, and you've helped that happen. So... That is a very complicated non-zero-sum game that's only possible with a lot of communications and transportation technology. Now, what I'm saying is that that's, you know, been a big part of the story all along. As, as human society grew from hunter-gatherer village to what are called chiefdoms, which is kind of multi-village polities, 
to city states, you know, all the way up as 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 the as the scale and complexity of social organization has grown, um, it's to to a pretty substantial extent been the case of people playing uh, non-zero sum games that are technologically enabled over larger and larger areas. That doesn't mean that there are no zero sum games. There are a lot, and they they play a role too. And it doesn't mean that it's, you know, everything comes out the best for everyone, that it's win-win, you know, even though that's kind of the the, the bumper sticker slogan for a non-zero-sum game is win-win. Uh, you know, a non-zero-sum game can be win-win or lose-lose, but in real life, it's complicated. There is exploitation. There are horrible zero-sum games and, and, and so on. Um, and there are lose-lose outcomes of non-zero-sum games, like wars where both sides uh, suffer tremendously. But... Um, uh, but on balance, I'm saying that there has been a kind of a growth of non-zero sumness, and that is, you know, in, in a, a big part of the driver of this direction of human history. Yeah, and, and you're saying, um, if I read you right, that both zero sum and non-zero sum um, encounters often lead to these non-zero sum. Like if you uh, set out to be cooperative, then that's, you know, you can create a non-zero outcome. But if you set out to conflict, um, you might create a zero sum outcome, but that ultimately might push you towards a non-zero sum outcome. Is that right? Yeah. Well, essentially like, like if you, if two countries are consider each other enemies, um, and you could loosely speaking call that a zero-sum game, you know, because they're viewing it that way, even though, of course, if they got into a war, it could be bad for both of them conceivably, and then it would be non-zero-sum. But you could loosely refer to that as zero-sum, a competitive relationship between two nations. And that dynamic will encourage both nations to become kind of more non-zero-sum internally, or at least it can encourage that. In other words, it's an incentive to cooperate internally within the nations. And the incentive is strengthened by the presence of a zero-sum dynamic. I mean, or just look at two sports teams. It's it's the competition between two basketball teams leads them to both coordinate and cooperate internally. So, mm-hmm. so even zero-sum dynamics wind up often uh, leading to the creation of more and more elaborate non-zero-sum cooperative structures. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I um, you know, I, I liked about your book is that it explores the, the, the kind of development of, of complexity and organization and whatever you, however you want to look at that in human societies. And, and you mentioned that as, you know, maybe not being particularly controversial, but you've kind of, you've, you've touched on some kind of controversies and particularly um, one is around the idea of, of cultural progress. And we, we have, um, at least in some quarters, there's a lot of, of sense that, that it's not uh, proper to talk about um, cultural progress as a, as a thing that, that's happened. How do, you, how do you approach that? How do you tackle that? Well, I mean, first of all, there's a couple of different dimensions of progress. There's technological progress. I think it's pretty undeniable that there's been technological progress as that is conventionally defined. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been economic progress, at least in the sense of uh, amount of stuff, cre- you know, generated, produced per, per person. It's not mm-hmm. to say it's all been equitably, justly distributed, but but in the aggregate. Um, and then there are questions of like moral progress. Um, and, and there it gets a little more 
uh, problematic. I do think that on balance, and here I'm following the work of people like Peter Singer, who he wrote a book called The Expanding Circle, um, arguing that there had been a kind of uh, moral progress. And I do think that the kind he talks about has happened. And the kind he talks about is the idea that that the moral uh, circle of the average person has grown. By moral circle, I just mean the circle within which the, you know, you consider other people people, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and humans worthy of decent treatment. So uh, apparently around 500 uh, BC or BCE, it was um, common for members of one Greek city state uh, to treat members of another Greek city state as basically subhuman. So it was a pretty narrow, you know, narrow uh, moral circle, pretty, pretty small diameter moral circle. Um, then, uh, then Greek Greece consolidated. And by the way, this is another example of a, where a, a zero sum dynamic can drive this. So there was there was competition with Persia, and there were wars with Persia that helped consolidate uh, a sense of Greek identity, hmm. right? That that covered all of Greece. Uh, but anyway, the point is that within Greece, the moral circle had expanded. Now all Greeks were humans. It was just the Persians who weren't humans, and. And that that circle has grown until today. I, I like to think that, you know, most people in America would say, well, people everywhere, regardless of race, creed or color, uh, are worthy of decent treatment. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, it's an important part of Christian doctrine from early on mm -hmm. that there's no discrimination based on ethnicity. Anyone can be a Christian. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that that, that you know, this that, that Christi early Christianity flourished in the Roman Empire, which was a multi national empire it was kind of globe glo globalization on a slightly smaller scale but it was a multinational multi-ethnic empire uh so you would expect that that any religion that was going to flourish uh as christianity did in the roman empire um would would have such a was such an inclusive mm. doctrine but in any event i would call that uh a step forward and i and i think on balance there has been progress in at least this sense, and I think it has been driven by the non-zero sumness we talked about, by the fact that we are, that people are interconnected with one another. Their fortunes are somewhat correlated, so it's 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 kind of not in their interest to treat, uh, you know, to to ignore, to totally ignore the welfare of other people or abuse yeah. uh, other people, at least not to the extent that it once might have been. Yeah, uh, that that made me think. Uh, there's there's a notion in. Uh, Christian thought a lot of times uh, and it comes comes directly from the New Testament that that um, Christianity or that that Christ came at just the right time that there is a there is a precise moment in history at which this was ready and and waiting to happen essentially and um, and so it's interesting to kind of to line that up with with things like what you're saying which is that the, you know the Roman Empire kind of created a a situation in which a religion like that that was that was promoting this kind of universal um, understanding of humanity could take off and could flourish. Yeah, I think the direction of history I've talked about was paving the way for uh, an inclusive, trans-ethnic, transnational doctrine like Christianity. Now, you know, if you're not a believing Christian, you might say. Well, it wasn't just that Jesus was providentially born at that moment. It's more like that kind of message was bound to catch on. And if it hadn't come from him, it would have come from someone else. Right. But but even then, 
and this is where I mean, you talk about controversy. Here's where I'm in trouble <laughs> uh, is, you know, so suppose you take that standpoint and you're not emphasizing Jesus in particular. You could still argue that the kind of moral progress there has been is and, and the kind of direction of history there's been uh, leave aside the moral progress in a certain sense. But but certainly if you include the moral progress, that that at least raises the question of whether the whole system has a larger purpose, whether there's a larger purpose unfolding on Earth, you know, through the workings yeah. of nature, even if you're not talking about any kind of transcendent intelligence outside of it, guiding it or anything like that, you could you could uh, raise the question, and I did raise the question in non-zero, yeah. um, of whether the system viewed broadly, and by the way, I mean broadly, I mean the system of life on Earth, starting with the origin of life, all the way through human history, because remember, biological evolution has the same, somewhat the same trajectory I've described in human history. Complexity on balance tends to grow, and at least if you look at the most complex species at any time, that tends to, on balance, get more and more complex. You know, first you get, you get, you have single-celled life, then complex cells, then multi-celled life, and then these complex societies of multi-celled creatures. And then eventually, I think you were fairly likely to get a creature smart enough to launch the kind of technological evolution we've seen. And pretty soon, you've got like this giant global brain, the Internet, you know. And, mm -hmm. and, and if you step back and look at the whole system in fast forward and time lapse, you know, from the first uh, speck of life to the giant global brain, you could be excused for going, wait a second, this looks almost like an organism unfolding. Hmm. And when an organism unfolds, we don't say, well, that's just an accident. That just happened. No, we say... The organism, the 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 seed of the or the egg of the organism, the DNA was in some sense designed. I mean, designed at least by natural selection, designed at least metaphorically, but in some sense, it was designed to unfold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm saying if you step back and look at the whole, uh, uh, you know, and by the way, some philosophers like Dan Dennett are comfortable talking about uh, biological organisms, biological organisms having purpose imbued mm -hmm. by natural selection. I'm just saying, well, by the same token, I mean, if you look at the whole system unfolding, if it looks that much like a coherent organism unfolding, it at least raises the question of whether in one sense or another there is a larger purpose unfolding. Mm -hmm. And and that has gotten me into a fair amount of trouble. Right. Right. And so, yeah, so let's let's talk about that. That That's uh, your recent article for The New York Times, Can Evolution Have a Higher Purpose?, um, you, you really kind of, um, uh, it, you know, un, unpacked a lot of this and, um, yeah, naturally invited a lot of controversy. So, so to be clear, you're not starting with some kind of religious or spiritual assumption. You're no. talking about something that you could hypothesize or, or at least entertain about, uh, the way evolution works. Yeah. I'm saying this should be purpose sh should in this sense, be treated as a hypothesis, and people should be allowed to argue about it and adduce evidence for or against it. Now, I don't think it's the kind of hypothesis we're going to settle mm -hmm. in my lifetime unless, you know, some alien species shows shows up and says, yep, we planted the seed of life <laughs> or some, you know, uh, right. a few billion years ago, and, and the whole point was to create a giant global brain or some other intelligence comes down and says that. that barring that, uh, I, we're not going to see the, the matter settled because it's just not the kind of hypothesis that is amenable to ready 
disproof or 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 to substantial corroboration but i still think you can you can argue about it uh and it matters for example whether uh you you think evolution you know to the extent that you can argue that evolution was likely to create more and more complexity eventually create uh an intelligent species and, and, and to the extent that you can argue it was likely that once that intelligent species launches technological evolution, you'd get the kind of progress I've described. To the extent that that seems to be the case, I think that at least strengthens to some extent the argument for purpose. And there are, there are whole other issues you can bring in, like the question of consciousness. But, um, but yeah, you're right. My point is that this is not – I don't claim to have had a divine revelation – I'm just saying I think the the system has some of the hallmarks we associate with purpose. So I'm conjecturing that maybe it has one. And so can we argue rationally about it? Turns out the answer seems to be no. People don't <laughs> want to argue rationally about it. People like Jerry Coyne, uh, the, this you know new atheist, uh, goes berserk, uh, in, in my view, and just doesn't stop to assess what you're actually saying. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to say even Steve Pinker, who I have a lot of respect for, but in an email exchange, I mean, he kind of tweeted something about Jerry Coyne's piece about my New York Times piece. And in the email he sent me, and I haven't yet replied to him, I'll have to explain this to him. But when I emailed him, Steve, about it, you know, he emailed me back and it was clear he didn't understand the argument. And I mean, disappointingly, he didn't understand the very thing that that whole New York Times piece was devoted to establishing. And maybe it's my fault, but maybe... On the other hand, there are people who are so allergic to the prospect that there's a larger purpose unfolding that they do not assess conjectures to that effect soberly. They right. just kind of go off the deep end. I think I think it's a hard thing to talk about, and it's uh, there's you know you you read you read through something like that, and your eye is is caught by certain things, which then become you know lo- locked in, and and I I kind of get that in a in a. Um, in a way, uh, but I try to be, you know, I, I've seen that so much. I try to, I try to be conscious of it. I know I, you know, can't, um, all the time, but it's, it, I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Well, God, God bless you because this is a hobby horse of mine too. the, I mean, first of all, you're right. We all struggle with this. I noticed it in going through Jerry Coyne's diatribe against me, hmm. right? Because I just, I, I, I scan it and find something that's plainly misleading Mm-hmm. And then that's like, and then that represents the whole piece for me. Yeah, okay, right. I found the thing that shows he's confused, and that's all I need. <clears throat> and then I go read over it more carefully, and I go, well, he does kind of acknowledge this and this. It's not as bad as I thought. But y- y- you're right, and that we are all inclined um, to view the world uh, through distorting lenses. Mm-hmm. And th- when I say this is a hobby horse of mine, it's because, in a way, it gets back to the whole non-zero thing. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm pretty worried, actually, that the world may be on the brink of spiraling downward into some chaos. Mm. And I think if it does, the reason will be because of these cognitive biases that we all have and that we don't correct for. And, mm. and, and they are what sustain the kind of whole psychology of tribalism, whether it is sectarian fighting in the, in the Middle East ideological, bitter ideological conflict in the United States, war between nations, it's all the same psychology. And it's a psychology that convinces each side that they are in the right and the other side is wrong. 
And, you know, you want, you know, uh, if you want to quote the Bible, there's the famous, uh, you know, when Jesus says, oh, hypocrite, why do you, uh, you know, why, why do you complain about the, is it the, the speck, uh, you know, yeah, depending on translation, the speck or the moat in your neighbor's eye or your right. brother's eye when you have a log or a beam in your own eye, you know, right. and, and that, and that is, um, that is the human condition. And I think the kind of awareness of it that you seem to have is really going to have to spread. I mean, I think that's, you know, we need to, uh, that needs to become the mission of a lot of people to, to help all of us become more aware of the cognitive biases we have that sustain a psychology of tribalism. Yeah, and ironically, there are there are a lot of resources in the Christian tradition that, that speak directly to that, uh, to this need to overcome our own cognitive biases, and that's such a, th- you know, like, and yet you see, like, Christians acting in a tribalistic way, ignoring those those exact things. Um, so, yeah. so unpack that a, a little bit. You said, you know, it, it, your, in your perspective, um, we've the, this kind of progress of, of non-zero um, of non-zero game uh, gains uh, has led us to the point where we are now um, you know we now function on a global level and you're saying like at this point um, we're kind of at a crisis because if we don't learn to function well at that global level then we're all gonna go down uh, because we're in a non-zero situation right I think our fortunes are so intertwined at this point. I mean, you see this economically like, you know, I don't know, I guess it's been 20 years since the Asian financial crisis that kind of spread around the world and led to trouble in different parts of the world. And and, uh, you know, you, you just you know, these, these economic crashes tend not to be confined to one nation because we are so intertwined. Hmm. So that's that kind of example. But look at Syria. I mean, the 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 chaos in Syria has has had implications uh, across Europe and to some extent in the United States, where you know because it it became uh, a place that ISIS could thrive, uh, then then ISIS manages to incite uh, you know a few not many but a few uh, Americans to commit homegrown terrorism, uh, and so you know more and more it, it's in our interest for. Uh, everywhere in the world to be reasonably stable and peaceful and and for people to be reasonably contented with their lot in life because if people aren't contented places become less stable and and bad things happen and they tend to spread mm-hmm. so um you know and, and this is it, it, but again it's a fascinating feature of history that if i'm right it has inevitably driven us toward the practical need to pay attention to the welfare of people around the world. That's a fascinating dynamic to be built into history, you know? Yeah. And now, now we may not get the picture. We may not, uh, you know, uh, and you can see forces at work that signify a failure to get the picture. But um, but still, the, the, the logic of the situation is there for us to seize, which is just to recognize that our fate, our fates are increasingly intertwined. Or... You know, for that matter, within the United States, uh, you know, I know this isn't a political podcast, but I mean, the victory of Donald Trump suggests that there were a fair number of Americans not happy with their lot in life. Um, and people who don't want Donald Trump to be president would have been well advised to pay attention to that discontent earlier. Yeah. Um, 
And, and, and you know, there's also one other thing about the election is to some extent um, you're, I see this in the context of, of society kind of moving toward a, a global level of social organization. I mean, because there is this tension. I, I, I think some of the Trump supporters um, see themselves as, in a way, standing against the trend toward globalization. But I don't, I don't think it's globalization per se they don't like. I think, I think they feel that there are people who are profiting from globalization, whereas they are not, right? Mm, or there are yeah. people who are, who are totally on board with, uh, you know, an identity that is, that is more global than American, and they're doing fine, and they don't care who, who, who out there fails to benefit from globalization. Right. So I think, you know, th th this whole non-zero thing is an important part of the current uh, political scene, I think. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Um well, let's talk about some of the ways uh, in your in your article you talked about ways in which evolution could be seen to have a higher purpose. And you started out by talking about um, this kind of prominent evolutionary biologist um, kind of riffing on the idea that maybe the world is this cosmic zoo that aliens are cultivating um, uh, evolution, on, you know, with. Um, so... What is that the um, is that the the main scenario or what is it what is it that you're trying it, to get at with that? It's not the main scenario, but but that was just it was a it was what I considered a powerful piece of video that I happen to have in my possession. So this mm -hmm. is a biologist who's no longer alive named William D. Hamilton, super famous in evolutionary biology circles because he came up with what's called the theory of kin selection, which explains why altruism would evolve within the family, so why you would you would be more inclined to save a brother or sister from from a burning building than somebody you just didn't know or even than a neighbor. Um, and uh, I had interviewed him on video in the 90s. And uh, I, he had started, he had gotten off on this riff that, <laughs> that I didn't anticipate about how, first of all, there might be a source of transcendent meaning Evolution might have a purpose, and he started saying, well, you know, for example, maybe uh, I've long thought, for all we know, uh, some alien species planted the seeds of evolution, and then for them, the system of life on Earth is kind of like a zoo, and they planted the seeds of evolution so that this human species or some intelligent species would develop, and now he said, in his scenario, there might even be intervention. They might occasionally, you know, insert a finger and correct the path of history or something, um, that's not so much a part of my way of thinking, but, but just to me, the idea that a serious evolution, a really highly esteemed evolutionary biologist was entertaining the possibility that evolution could have a purpose and that, and that one reason the scenario made sense to him was precisely because he thought that if you had just planted the seeds of evolution, an intelligent species would be likely to evolve. Hmm. I thought that was really interesting because some of my detractors, when I make the, uh, you know, I, I suggest that there could be a, a larger purpose unfolding through evolution, you know, they tend to be, they, they consider themselves the true Darwinians. You know, like, like Jerry Coyne is a, is a paleontologist and, and he thinks, he seems, he acts as if it is um, just, you know, some, some kind of uh, violation of, of Darwinian dogma to suggest that there's a larger purpose. 
And I always say, no, wait, I'm a Darwinian. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't buy the theory of intelligent design or anything. I think evolution is just, gen you know, the, the only engine is natural selection, but it could still have a purpose. And uh, so for me to have this supporting testimony, so to speak, from William Hamilton, and by the way, people want to see the video, if you go to YouTube and just search for William D. Hamilton, you'll get a video that's on the, well, it's a channel that I run called meaningoflife.tv, which is also a website I run, which has, uh, in fact, we had a, a you know, a, hum a, a transhumanist on recently. In fact, that's how he got in touch with you. Yeah, right? uh, my friend, uh, Julio Prisco. Correct. Yes. So that so my, my conversation with him is on Meaning of Life TV and, and either in a streaming video or as an audio podcast. So anyway, um, you know, I, I know that the space alien scenario is just an illustrative one. My main point was that, uh, you know, that a serious evolutionary biologist looked at the whole system of evolution and said, yeah, this could have been set in motion with the idea of generating higher intelligence, you know, an intelligent species, and, and with what, and then whatever follows from that intelligent species, which turns out to be a giant global brain, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, uh, not quite a coalesced one, and and that's the big question: Will we close the deal and become a, a a cohesive global community and work together, or will we descend into chaos? I think either option is possible, and I think we we face a kind of moral test uh, right now because I think it it takes a kind of moral progress to close the deal and and a big part of that moral progress is what you were you were talking about all of us reflecting on our cognitive biases and being aware that the human brain is a very imperfect and even kind of biased um instrument but but anyway no space aliens are not the only scenario you can imagine uh all kinds of uh ways that in fact one of the uh you know, all kinds of ways life could have been set in motion and yet in some sense have a purpose. And uh, one of the more uh, maybe far-fetched but interesting ones uh, comes from the work of Lee Smolin, who has suggested that yeah. universes replicate and uh, through black holes and, and that over time you get universes... Just as with natural selection, you get universes that are better at replicating themselves, which means they have more and more black holes. And uh, some people have, there's a particular variant of his theory championed by uh, some people, um, according to which evolved life would play a role so that uh, it, it would, in this scenario, like, in, you know, when, when life evolves, it eventually reaches an intelligence such that it knows how to create black holes. Mm. And so universes, in this scenario, universes that, that, that generate evolution that leads to, a, to a, an intelligent species that eventually creates black holes, those universes are favored in this kind of evolution of universes scenario. So in that scenario, life would have a purpose in a different sense, not a purpose imbued by uh, an intelligence in the, in, as we think of it, but rather a purpose imbued by this natural selection among universes. Now, this is, uh, it, it, it's, it's such a strange scenario that I probably haven't uh, managed to convey it clearly. But the point is just that if it's true that there is in some sense a purpose to evolution, um, the scenarios range all the way from space aliens to 
more conventional conception of a transcendent God that exists outside the system but set the thing in motion and conceivably could intervene, as William Hamilton pointed out, um, to, uh, to something not involving an intelligence uh, per se, but rather uh, something that imbued purpose to evolution in the sense that evolution imbues purpose to individual organisms, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it, it does to me, and there's a lot there, and I, um, I know a lot of people will will probably uh, be having their their minds blown right now. So, so <laughs> I, I, I want to um, pull out one thing um, there, and then let's talk more about the cosmological natural selection. But um, one thing that I am seeing in um, a kind of theme that you're you're pulling out is that. You know, there's the traditional argument from design, which is that you you look at a complex thing and you say, okay, this this might be designed because um, because of this complexity. It might have a purpose because of this complexity. But you're also looking at the fact that we also, when things produce certain results, like uh, you know, a clock tells time or you know something like that, that's also an indication of of purpose, right? There, purpose can be. Uh, in the fact that something accomplishes a certain end. And so the fact that um, that the process of evolution leads to these certain things um, or seems to be leading this certain direction is um, at least an, a potential indication that here's a process that serves a function. Here's a process that has a purpose. And you're then asking, okay, you know, what is what is giving it that purpose? What is imbuing it with that purpose? Mm-hmm. Where does that? How does that purpose fit into kind of a larger scheme of theme? Yeah, things? I mean, first of all, I'm not claiming <clears throat> by any means that uh, there's so much evidence of purpose that we can safely conclude that there is purpose, or even that the chances are greater than fifty percent. I don't know what the chances are, but you're right. I'm saying there is such a thing as evidence of purpose, and one of them is, as you suggested, something that that seems functional, right? I mean, this gets back to a famous. Uh, treatise in the history of theology, which is the became provided the title for Richard Dawkins's book, The Blind Watchmaker. Mm-hmm. There was this uh, theologian uh, William Paley who made the argument. Look, it was an argument for the existence of God, and the argument was, look, if you're walking through a field and you you step on a rock, there's no reason to assume that's designed. It doesn't seem to have a function. But if you step if you step on a pocket watch, you pick it up, you go well. This seems to have been designed for something. It has a function. And he said, well, by the same token, if you come across like a squirrel or something, that also, like the watch, has a complex functionality. Mm -hmm. And he said, so therefore, God must have created the squirrel. Now, Dawkins, of course, in his book, uh, part of his point was, no, God didn't create the squirrel, at least certainly not directly. Uh, Natural selection created the squirrel. But Dawkins conceded a really important point. He said, however, William Paley made an appropriate distinction between things that don't seem like they need a special explanation, rocks, and things that do seem like they need a special explanation, pocket watches and squirrels. Hmm. And now the question of what the special explanation is, what did create them, is, is, is then a further question to figure out. Because it turns out that with a pocket watch, it's one kind of explanation an intelligent conscious designer built a pocket watch, whereas with a squirrel, it's an unconscious p- process called natural selection. Still, William Paley was right to say that you can look at a physical system, rock, pocket watch, squirrel, and ask yourself, is there evidence 
that it in some sense was designed to perform in some sense some some purpose. So yeah. that's that's a key concession. And and what I'm saying is, okay, Dawkins has in that book applied this this uh, th- th- this approach to like animals, so like squirrels. I'm saying, well, let's step back and apply it to the whole system of life. Does the whole system of life, as viewed as a single unfolding thing, have the properties? That in the case of a single unfolding squirrel, right, from egg to squirrel, Dawkins concedes are the properties indicative of purpose and design. Um, And uh, I'm saying that even though I have no disagreement with Dawkins on how evolution unfolds, it's just natural selection, it is still his own logic suggests that we can at least ask the question about that system. Is there at least some evidence that we need a special explanation here, that that in some sense purpose was imbued in this system. And I think there is at least some evidence, and a lot of the evidence is summed up in the fact that it does kind of resemble the squirrel in the unfolding. It does it does kind of look that, like as if a giant global superorganism has been unfolding and is start, starting to crystallize now. Yeah, so that... that um kind of takes us back to to the cosmological natural selection because if if the world in some way resembles this unfolding organism then you could ask the question of okay well what was the parent of the organism right and right. if you're if you don't have a uh, built-in answer to that question from your kind of metaphysics uh, or philosophy or whatever then um, then you start looking for something, uh, and Lee Smolin, uh, like you, like you described, ha- articulated this this theory of of uh, evolution of the universes. Right, that ev- that universes could be considered organisms which spawn other organisms and uh, then become progressively better at, at doing it. Now, Lee Smolin, um, in in suggesting that, was suggesting that. Um, in essence, black holes were the um, the, the reproductive of, organs. Yeah, the, that's that's right. The reproductive organs of of the universe, leading to new baby universes, and that those baby universes would have some kind of would share some of the traits of the parent universe, but have different traits, right? And so that um, and so that over time, the kind of selection process would would happen so that universes would get better and better at what they do which would be to to reproduce now what what you've done and i haven't heard um you talked about to lewis crane and i think maybe somebody somebody else who've um explored this more in depth and this is the thing that i thought have always thought since reading lee smolin's argument that was missing from the equation which was um wouldn't intelligent beings be good at uh, creating black holes with given kinds of attributes or, you know, g- given um, kinds of, of configurations or whatever was desired in that equation. And to me, that seems like an obvious, uh, an obvious yes. Like intelligent beings would actually be better than just the kind of raw background forces of the universe at producing the kinds of black holes that might be desired by this process, which would then mean that intelligent beings are part of the uh, this ongoing process of evolution of the universes. Right. That uh, that they or, or that the system of evolution that, that 
produces the intelligent beings in this scenario are imbued with purpose in, in the sense that organisms are imbued with purpose by natural selection. I mean, I, I had a similar thing, which is that I had read about Lee Smolin's theory. I, I didn't I didn't just I didn't go at it quite the way you did. I, I uh, And thinking, wait a second, wouldn't humans be great at creating black holes? It was more like I, I was already thinking, well, through through some kind of meta natural selection, maybe that's how evolution could have been imbued with a purpose. And is there a way that that could fit into Lee's Smolin's scenario? So I had him on Meaning of Life TV. There's also a conversation with him uh, and me on Meaning of Life TV. And I said, is there is there a way? And he said, well, I've got bad news for you. This is not an original idea on your part. Uh, it's been worked out by this guy Lewis Crane hmm. uh, and L E W I S C R A N E, I think. And so I, I, um, I tracked him down. And I had a conversation with him on Meaning of Life TV, um, and I think maybe, maybe a video of him is embedded in that New York Times piece too. Certainly the one of Hamilton is. Um, and uh, but in any event, it's on it's on uh, Meaning of Life TV, and it turned out that yeah, Lewis Crane had thought of that, and and he describes it. You know, he he says, yeah, we there we have a purpose. He says, you know, there, there, that's his belief is that our purpose is to develop, continue to develop technologically to sustain human civilization and eventually create a bunch of more black holes. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, so uh, as part of this ongoing replication of universes, you know, it seems kind of far fetched, but who are we to say? <laughs> well, yeah, and um, the, yeah, there's there's so many kind of different interesting aspects to that, but but essentially what that does is that gives us a reason for saying, oh, okay, it would make sense then to think that our universe would be fine tuned for um, for intelligent beings like us because we are part of the the intent, right? We're part of the process. And we're not just kind of a peripheral, accidental sideline. We're actually a core aspect of what the universe is doing. Right. And this could uh, help, uh, sh- it could shed some light on this, this whole, uh, you know, so-called anthropic principle, which begins... That whole discussion begins with the observation by some physicists that it seems as if the fundamental constants of the universe were almost fine-tuned to permit the emergence of life. Like, if these various things, I don't know what, like the weight of various uh, elements or the, I don't know, the constant of gravitation, whatever, if lots of things had been just slightly, slightly, ever so slightly different, then so far as we can tell, life could never have emerged. And, and, and so, in other words, the universe seems fine-tuned for the emergence of life. And uh, I'm not one to judge whether it's even the case that it's fine-tuned. But, but anyway, th- that is the, uh, the, the, that, that part doesn't get disputed a lot by physicists. But, but, but what some do say is, well, obviously, the universe has properties conducive to life. We're here. I mean, it could, we couldn't be in a universe with properties not right, conducive. Right. But, but, but in any event, this, this kind of meta-natural selection, this cosmological natural selection, if life does play a role in the replication of universes, right, um, then that could explain how our universe, how uni- there came to be universes that are fine-tuned for the emergence of life. So, so that, that, that would be an interesting yeah. uh, fruit of this particular scenario. Well, it, it strikes me that, that um, 
yeah, the, the anthropic principle is, is, you know, kind of a tautology, right? We're here. So, but it's also the sort of thing, like you said earlier about the squirrel and, and about um, evolution itself that kind of demands a more complex explanation than just, okay. You know, like uh, <laughs> it, yeah. it seems to, to suggest, uh, you know, at, at least on, on my looking at the kind of, uh, you know, what we call fine-tuning evidence um i you know i would say okay this this asks for some kind of explanation now it may may just be that you know everything happens that can happen or what or whatever but but um it, it strikes me that that evolution in the conventional sense is proposed precisely as a way to um, be more specific than just everything that can happen will happen um, because it, it needs more, um, at least a more definitive kind of answer to that. And I think that's what Lee Smolin felt when he was kind of composing this this idea. He really seemed to feel like uh, we needed a little bit better of a Yeah, a although I think because, because Lee's uh, scenario... His generic, the generic version of his theory does not involve right. life in a role of replication. What he says about the fine tuning is, look, the 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 kind of tuning you need for life to emerge actually has a lot in common with the kind of tuning you need for black holes to emerge. Right. So it could just be that the universe is fine tuned for the emergence of black holes, period, and that happens to be conducive to the emergence of life. Yeah, but but the other variant of his theory is is more directly implicates life in the uh, in the fine tuning. Yeah, I would actually want to go to a, a argument that that Richard Dawkins kind of talks about in in distinguishing between parasites and um, and symbiotic organisms, where he in in I believe this is in the selfish gene, but he talks about it. What's whether or not they have a shared path to the future. Meaning, you know, when when the organism reproduces, does it carry the parasites with it uh, in the same, you know, the same gene line, essentially, or mm-hmm. does it um, or do they have divergent paths? And he's he says that if they have the same path to the future, then they're they're essentially part of the same process. Um, and so that's what I would start to see here. If if humans and black holes have so so many things in common in terms of what they need in their environment, um, then maybe that's also not accidental. But anyway, I'm 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 way out on a speculative limb here. But <laughs> um, so I I think that's I think that's very interesting, and I I think it um it you, you kind of talk about some other scenarios too, in you know in terms of like the simulation argument and so forth that, you know, that people have talked about recently in, in terms of these things. And one of the key distinctions that you make is that um, we're ultimately not talking about, I mean, the, 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 the thing that, that makes this a, a legitimate hypothesis versus kind of a, a illegitimate hypothesis is um is that we're not talking about like spooky forces and and so on? Or, or, right. You you've said that better. Uh, what, what? How would you distinguish those two things? Well, the whole point of my New York Times piece almost was it wasn't an argument for purpose or or an argument that there is a fair amount of evidence 
of purpose. It did link to a separate thing I wrote, arguing that there's at least some evidence for purpose. But the point of the New York Times piece was really largely just to make the point you're talking about, which is that because people have so much trouble wrapping their mind around this, that you can have a conventional scientific conception of the material structure of the universe and of the way evolution works, which is by natural selection, and still think that the system that natural selection drives, evolution, has a purpose. These two things are compatible. Purpose does not have to denote uh, you know, spooky forces. It doesn't have to denote anything supernatural. Now, I mean, and and I used the the Hamilton scenario was used to make the point that even, uh, you know, the again he's the biologist who had taken at least somewhat seriously the idea that life was started by space aliens for the purpose of of generating the uh, an intelligent species. Um, you can uh, as you can as 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 his scenario indicates, actually believe that there is intervention by the intelligence uh, that created the system. But even then, that doesn't need to be supernatural or be spooky action at a distance or anything, because in his scenario, the space aliens would just be using advanced technologies to manipulate the system on Earth on those few occasions when they manipulated it. So, um, the, uh, you know, the... Uh, that was the point. The The point was that uh, the world could comply entirely with the laws of science and evolution could be um, driven entirely by natural selection, As and I have no reason to believe that it isn't. Um, and yet things could be stranger than we commonly think, you know, and, and there could even be uh, a larger purpose unfolding. Yeah, so... <sighs> Yeah, and and uh, in you know he t- he kind of jokingly talks about about miracles, these the interventions, you know, but not supernatural miracles, just you know, just interventions. Right. They but, would seem they would seem supernatural, right? They might they might if you saw one, but I mean they might seem supernatural because the aliens would presumably be using some technology that you know was invisible to you, but um, but they would not be supernatural, right? Right. So what would what do you think um, might be pushed back on that? Um, what would be, um, uh, you know, because I, I could I could see where you say, OK, well, now we now we've opened the door to say, you know, um, maybe some aliens were teleporting, you know, on, onto Earth, you know, uh, thousands of years ago or something like that. Um, what would be <laughs> what's the problem with that from a scientific perspective? You mean the problem with Hamilton's scenario? Yeah, like what um, that because I think that would be where a lot of a lot of scientists would really start to to balk, right? Because <laughs> yeah, you, you, you <laughs> notice that too. Well, you know, even I don't buy it. I mean, I, right. I just used it uh, to make the point that a serious biologist thought evolution had a direction and was, right. li- you know, the, the evolution by natural selection was likely to sufficiently likely to create intelligent life as to raise the question of, as whether uh, purpose there, that was its purpose. But, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, so I'm not, I'm not buying it per se, but, uh, you know, I, there's no strictly speaking scientific problem with it on the other hand. Right. He was speaking within a scientific framework. That was kind of part of my point. So now scientists, by and large, just don't like stuff that weird, maybe. And so he'd get, he will, you know, he does get pushback. 
Um, but I, I think honestly, the, the actual source of the some of the pushback I get, uh, you know, from the Jerry Coins of the world and so on is, I, I think they think, look, okay, so you are talking about a purpose that's entirely compatible with natural selection, and indeed, you believe natural selection is is all that drove evolution. So you're not going to try to get Darwin uh, taken out of our classrooms, but this is like the camel's nose under the tent. I would, I, I, I'm putting these words in their mouth, but yeah. maybe this is what they think, is that if you start talking about higher purpose, pretty soon you're going to have fundamentalist Christians taking, um, taking uh, the, the, you know, Darwin out of the classroom. Now, I, I think it could be the other way around, which is that if, if Richard Dawkins talks as if natural selection is totally incompatible with any conception of higher purpose, then maybe that's what will uh, incite mm. uh, fundamentalists to take Darwin out of the classroom, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean uh, so, so it's far from clear to me that if this is their fear, uh, <clears throat> their fear of even talking about uh, mm -hmm. evolution embodying the unfolding of a larger purpose through the workings of nature. If this is their fear, it's far from clear to me that the fear is well-grounded. Yeah, that's so so interesting from a, a, <laughs> a social perspective because w what I'm hearing there is, and I, I think you're probably right about this, is that there's a lot of concern um, around what I would call the slippery slope fallacy. You know, that, that, that if we, if we let some of these kinds of discussions in the door, then pretty soon we've just given the whole, whole thing away. Um, and, and so there's a reaction there, um, that, uh, I think it, it goes hand in hand with the, the reaction from the other side, which is that we can't, you know, we can't allow, um, secular uh science to proceed down some of these roads at all mm -hmm. right and and it is striking to me and i don't know what what's happened in terms of uh, you know kind of cultural uh, movement or whatever but you know you do get back in in seemingly you know the 1930s and and so forth a lot of these people grappling with evolution who do talk about things like higher purpose and so forth. And that seems to have been very much um, kind of driven out of the, the conversation. Oh, yeah. Well, even right after Darwin, I mean, in, in Darwin's letters, you can find a letter from a, a, a clergyman uh, named Charles Kingsley, who was a somewhat prominent figure in Victorian England, saying, basically, I've now come to believe that it's a it's a more awesome conception of God. He didn't use that word. But to think of God as someone who created uh, humans through natural selection, <clears throat> then as someone who created human beings directly hands-on. In other words, he was saying it's, a, it's in a way a more amazing intellectual feat to come up with, with a process of natural selection as a way of, of creating intelligent life than to just build the life directly now i don't i don't know whether that's the case but the point is that there were theologians accepting natural selection and 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 building it into their um theology even back then in the in yeah. the late 19th century yeah. and and i don't think uh, you know darwin himself was not in the end uh, uh, a religious person in any conventional sense 
but he he certainly didn't dispute those kinds of claims and and maybe that was just for kind of political reasons he he didn't want to he wanted to keep everybody as happy as possible with the theory of natural selection but i think it that signifies that at least he recognized it was a it was possible you know yeah. that 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 evolution had a purpose whether or not he believed it did and and i and i don't think he did yeah yeah, I, I I think that's hmm. Yeah, there, there's a there's a really interesting uh, line of of thinking to explore there because because I think I think you might be right in terms of of um, it, yeah, just by 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 kind of ridding that from our conversations, um, we invite this re- reactionary uh, supernaturalism rather than kind of a thoughtful like engagement with naturalism uh, at, at a large scale because, you know, humans tend to, to feel like they need purpose uh, or they need meaning or, or something yeah. like that. Um, and so kind of pitching uh, science, pitching naturalism, pitching evolution against those things seems like a, a bad idea to me. <laughs> um, yeah, it does to me. Uh, now, I mean, I'm not going to claim that anything I'm proposing could be the case would fit uh, readily into the worldview of the kinds of fundamentalists who want to get Darwin out of the classroom. I'm not I'm not saying that. But I but I but I do think that um, that when Dawkins and other, you know, some of the other so-called new atheists talk as if you have to choose between. Darwin's theory of natural selection and believing that there might be a larger purpose to life, then uh, I, I, I personally think that that may, may make life uh, harder for people who want to defend the teaching of evolution in the schools. I'm not sure, but but it's at least yeah. possible. Yeah. Well, I, I know um, we've got some time constraints. Uh, I, I would love to talk um, to you in the future about um, the evolution of the concept of God, all, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's um, so much there. Um, but... Um, but I love I love this dialogue you're having, and I and um, I, I may have pushed you out into some some murky waters. So uh, for, <laughs> forgive me for that, for that. I've been in murky waters before. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, I love it. So I'm gonna put I'm gonna put links uh, in the show notes for um, for some of these resources, your books. Um, where should people follow you? Where should they keep up with um, new stuff you're doing? Uh, well, my Twitter handle is at Robert Ryder, R-O-B-E-R-T-W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. I mostly tweet about politics there. Uh, I taught an online course on Buddhism. Uh, if you, if you Google, uh, Buddhism and modern psychology, you'll get that. That's for free. And then I have a book, uh, coming out on that, uh, in, in the summer. But, um, cool. the, uh, uh. You know, and then meaningoflife.tv is where I think uh, your audience in particular might find stuff that they're interested in. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll do it, and um, hopefully we'll uh, we'll talk again in the future. Um, I, I hope so. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thanks so much, Robert. We'll talk later. Okay. okay.